We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, Daniel, do you know what I don't understand about winning a physics Nobel Prize? Oh, yeah, what's that? Well, you know, to be honest, some of them seem kind of easy in hindsight. Easy to win a Nobel Prize? Yeah, I mean, like for Einstein, all he had to do was analyze someone else's experiment. It was just one idea that he had one day, and boom, Nobel Prize. I guess that's easy if you're Einstein. Well, I mean, also like the discovery of x-rays was totally by accident, and it took about one day of work for them. That's true, if you happen to have x-rays around. Or like the Higgs boson, you know, like college physics major can do that kind of math. All right, you win, I admit it. Getting a physics Nobel Prize is easy, so then uh, why don't we have one? Because we haven't tried. Let's win one today, Daniel. All right. Great idea, Einstein. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Jorge M. Cartoonist and the creator of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist, and I have not yet won a Nobel Prize, but maybe any day, someday, will be the day. Do you wake up every day thinking, maybe today's (laughs) the day I'll have my great idea? 
I don't expect it to ever happen, but I do love those stories when somebody has a moment of insight or stumbles across something weird. And that morning when they woke up and had their oatmeal or whatever, they had no idea that it would be that fateful day. Maybe that's the key. It's the oatmeal. And maybe it's a special <laughs> kind of oatmeal, Daniel, like a radioactive oatmeal. Bitten by his radioactive oatmeal, he gained its proportional <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Maybe that was Einstein's secret. I think when people say you're as smart as a bowl of oatmeal, they don't mean it as a compliment. Well, I think that's very disparaging of oatmeal because you never know. There could be sentient genius oatmeal out there in space. They could be our next alien overlords. Yet another sci-fi pitch for Netflix. Put it on the list. All right. Well, welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we try not to turn your brain into oatmeal as we talk about all the amazing things that are out there in our universe. All the things that we have painstakingly uncovered in our search to reveal the fundamental nature of matter and radiation and everything in the universe. And all the things that science is still picking at. All the big questions that are out there. All the discoveries that might be far into the future or just around the corner. That's right. The universe is full of mysteries, full of big questions and wonderful discoveries just waiting for us to find them and possibly get a Nobel Prize for finding them. In the congratulatory bowl of oatmeal. And sometimes the answer to those questions is already out there. It's beaming down at us from the cosmos or it's in somebody's data. They just don't even recognize it. And sometimes those Nobel Prizes come just from putting one thing next to the other from finding that the answer to a question is already out there. Yeah, because technically all of the secrets of the universe, all of the great big truths about it are out there for us to discover. I mean, it's not like they don't exist. They're there. We just haven't seen them or having discovered them or haven't known where to look. Yeah, you know, that's a really fun question. Like, is it actually possible to unravel the nature of the universe without ever leaving the Earth? just by watching the skies. It's sort of incredible what we have been able to figure out about like far-flung corners of the universe, the way galaxies expand and collide and do all sorts of crazy stuff without ever having left the Earth. But I wonder if it's possible to actually figure out like all of it, to get all the way down to string theory and quantum gravity without ever going anywhere else. It would be pretty cool if all that information was beaming down on us right now. Are you saying like, are we maybe in the wrong place? Like if we were somewhere else, we could see the secrets of the universe, <laughs> you know, or maybe they're all in one box, but in another part of the galaxy. Yeah. Or it might be that you need to do some kind of experiment, like smash black holes together at very high speeds in order to get the answer to some question. Or it might be that you need to be able to look inside a black hole, which we can do from here. Maybe you need to be nearby it in order to decrypt the quantum information in the Hawking radiation. It might not be possible to gather all that information from Earth or Maybe it is. Maybe if somebody was smart enough, they could figure out all the secrets of the universe just from the data we are getting today. Yeah, hopefully not by getting us near a black hole or by smashing a couple of black holes together here on Earth. <laughs> that sounds kind of dangerous. Hey, anything in the name of science. Not worth a Nobel Prize. Well, you know, everybody makes their own judgment call on that. Please, physicists, check with the rest of us before <laughs> you make those kinds of judgment calls. I know this is important for you, all of you, but, you know, we might have other priorities. Yeah, your priority is to get to name the black hole machine, right? I want to be alive to name it <laughs> and to call it that, you know. But yeah, the history of physics and science here on Earth has a long and interesting history full of 
amazing discoveries. And some of them happened kind of by accident, right? Oh, lots of them happened by accident. People stumble across stuff they didn't even know to look for, see things they don't understand, and only later realize that they contain secrets of the universe. So today we'll be covering one such story of an amazing discovery that really kind of illuminated in a very real way the beginning of the universe. Absolutely. It's some of the oldest light in the universe and it tells us a lot about how the universe began and how hot and dense and crazy it was billions and billions of years ago. And it was almost overlooked and mistaken for pigeon poop. <laughs> wow, that is a big oops there for the <laughs> physicists. So today on the program, we'll be talking about... How was the cosmic microwave background discovered? Now, Daniel, this is the famous CMB, right? This is the famous CMB that has taught us so much about the nature of the universe. It's not the CMBR, as they call it in the Marvel Universe. You have a problem with that. Well, the scientists in the Marvel Universe can call their CMB whatever they like. But out here in the real universe, we tend to call it the CMB. Just the mi cosmic microwave background, meaning like it's the background, basically, of the universe. It's everywhere. It's all around us. Photons from the early universe plasma are zooming all over the universe in every direction, no matter where you look. That's what we mean by background. It's sort of just like always there. It's everywhere. Yeah, and it has a long and interesting history of people thinking it was there, but not seeing it or seeing it and not thinking it was there. It's kind of a, an interesting and dramatic plot line, right? Absolutely. And it's the kind of thing that could have been discovered very easily decades before it was. And in fact, it was discovered several times without even being understood. And so it's sort of like a story of missed opportunities. And the folks who ended up winning the Nobel Prize for finding it could very easily not have. So it sounds like a pretty intriguing story. So we'll dig into that and go over every detail. But first, we were curious about how many people know how this amazing discovery was found. So as usual, Daniel went out there into the wilds of the internet and asked people if they knew how the cosmic microwave background was discovered. And so if you would like to be interrogated about physics by a physicist without the opportunity to consult any reference materials, if that sounds fun to you, then please Email me to questions at danielandjorge.com. Here's what people had to say. I think it was around the 70s or whenever it was. They built a very powerful telescope, maybe a radio telescope, to look at something else. And then they, they heard or saw some like what they thought was noise from a local source. Uh, they even thought it was the pigeons that were nesting in the telescope and they actually had a big job clearing that out, trying to get rid of it. But no matter what they did, couldn't get rid of it. And they, But obviously, eventually they realized it wasn't local at all, but from four, almost 14 billion light years away, the uh, CMBR. Two words, Hubble Telescope. Okay, that's a tool, not an answer. Aliens told us about it and they also told us where to look. So we pointed the Hubble Telescope at the cosmic microwave background radiation and that's how we discovered it. Um, I haven't really heard about it, but just as an assumption, maybe when we were trying to discover some kind of radiations. I think the background radiation was discovered by accident. It didn't had nothing to do with someone using their microwave oven to, to make eggs, but I think it was World War II, weren't they doing radar experiments and they discovered this noise, but um, I think it was by accident. The cosmic microwave background was discovered by two scientists uh, working at Bell Labs in New Jersey who were investigating a strange buzz 
they picked up when actually working on something else. I think it was discovered around 1960s as one of the first discoveries of radio astronomy. After making sure it wasn't the error in data or in measurements, there was a lot of theorizing what it what it meant and why the signal was actually heard. Quite possibly with a radio telescope, maybe astronomers or scientists were looking at like certain stars or something. They're like, hey, these guys are giving off a lot of radiation. And then they looked at the stars and they're like, oh, it's not the stars, but something around it, but there's nothing around it. So they're like, oh, what if we just focused on the space around it? And then they focused on the space. All right. A lot of versions of the story here from the public. Yeah, a lot of people seem to know something about how it was discovered by accident. Yeah, including apparently aliens told us about it. <laughs> I like how this person just said two words, Hubble, telescope, bam, drops the mic and aliens. Oh, by the way, also aliens. Well, how else do you know where to point your Hubble telescope, right? The aliens have to tell you. It makes perfect sense. It's pretty surprising how many people had heard about this and also knew a little bit about it. You know, generally people seem to know that it, it wasn't like this intentional thing, like there was some element of accident to it. That's exactly right. And it took a long time for people to even know that it should be there and know that we might be able to see it. So there's sort of like progress and back steps and forward steps on the theoretical side, as well as on the actual like observational side. All right, well, let's get into the story then and maybe take us back, Daniel, because I imagine this story starts in the early 1900s and, you know, we were sort of just starting to discover how big the universe was and that it maybe came from a big bang. You know, what were we thinking at the time and what did, did we know? Because, you know, I imagine that the idea that there's some background noise in the, in the universe is not that surprising to think about, but it having some special meaning maybe is. Yeah, so we have to go back to basically Hubble. Hubble's the one who figured out that the universe was expanding. Before that, people thought that everything was just sort of like hanging out in space. Things hadn't changed in hundreds or thousands or billions of years. But Hubble discovered that there were other galaxies out there and that they were moving away from us faster and faster. And suddenly that made the universe dynamic instead of static, like things were definitely changing. And people had two totally different concepts of ways to explain what Hubble saw, that the universe was expanding. One is the idea that's very familiar to us, that if the universe is expanding, then you run the clock backwards in time, then it must have been more dense, must have been more compact, must have been more squeezed together in the beginning. And you can sort of track it back to a very early moment when you reach like infinite density, the singularity. So this is the Big Bang idea that the universe came from some like huge early expansion. And what we're seeing now is the remnants of that, the continued expansion of the universe. So that was one idea, this Big Bang idea. Right, because we, we saw the stars and the galaxies. Right now, they're all moving away from us. So, you know, the idea is that if you rewind, then at some point everything was crunched together. Yeah, but some people didn't like that idea. They thought that's ridiculous for the universe to have a beginning and for it to begin in some sort of Big Bang. And in fact, the name Big Bang came about as a sort of like an insult. And they were like trying to, you know, make that idea sound silly by calling it a Big Bang. And instead, they preferred a steady state theory of the universe. 
Now, it's sort of hard to have a steady state idea of the universe that the universe like isn't changing on the largest scale when you see that it's expanding. You know, how could that possibly be? If things are expanding, don't they get less and less dense? Well, their idea was that there was some like source of new stuff in the universe, that stuff was constantly being created. And that was like refilling the universe. So the universe was expanding, but at a constant density because there was some like thing that was like topping it off all the time. That is sort of what we think of now. But back then, it seemed sort of counter to the evidence. Well, that's interesting that you say that. You're right that we know that the universe is expanding and that there is more space being created. But the universe is getting more and more dilute. The steady state theory involved like the creation of more stars and galaxies and more stuff in the universe to keep like the density constant. So the steady state theory was like, well, let's figure out how to make the universe so it's not getting more and more dilute. That it's always been this way and, and lived forever. They were thinking like the density of the universe doesn't change. It's somehow expanding, but the density is not changing. Yeah, because somebody's like pouring more syrup onto these pancakes all the time. And so even though it's dribbling off the edges, you're keeping the same amount of syrup on top of your pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> That's my big pancake theory of the universe. I, I think you messed up that <laughs> analogy. I think it, it's more like the, the pancakes getting bigger. And so somebody must be pouring more syrup. There you saying. go. All right. There yeah, you go. there you go. All right. All right. Like that That's one. a more delicious it's analogy. It's a very breakfast-themed physics analogy today. Yeah, oatmeal, pancakes. <laughs> it's the most important physics meal of the day. Wait till you hear about my waffle-based observation ideas. That might have to be another episode, <laughs> Daniel. I'm stuffed already. And so these were sort of the ideas people were bouncing around, like what does the expansion of the universe mean? Did it come from some early hot, dense point? Or is there some place where the universe is creating new stuff so the things don't get less and less dense as time goes on? I guess, why were they fighting this idea of a, a more, you know, kind of empty universe? Like, why couldn't the universe be getting more and more dilute? I think they didn't like the idea of a beginning. It seemed sort of counterintuitive. They preferred the concept. It seemed more natural to them to imagine the universe had always been here because if there's a beginning, then as you know, there are big questions about that beginning. What came before it? What caused it. Why do we have a beginning? You can avoid some of those things if you imagine the universe has just always been this way. Like if you don't accept that the universe could have a beginning, then you have to make something up. Like where's all this syrup coming from? Yeah, there are always more questions. But you know, it was sort of an aesthetic preference. And so you had physicists on both sides of the issue, some arguing that the universe must have started with a big bang and others suggesting that, you know, stuff was constantly being made in this steady state. And so that's what people were thinking about. They were like, where does the stuff in the universe come from? And they were trying to understand, for example, where heavy stuff in the universe came from. Like, where does all the iron and where does all the nickel and all that stuff in the universe come from? Was it made during the Big Bang or is it somehow made somewhere else and being like poured into the universe somehow? I see, because it could have been made in the Big Bang, right? Like the heavier elements could have been forged in that hot, dense initial moments. That's what people thought in the early part of the century, that maybe in that incredible heat from the Big Bang, you could have made iron and you could have made silicon and oxygen. And maybe all the elements were fused in that initial time period. So people spent a lot of time doing theoretical calculations of how hot it was back then in the very early universe. What was the temperature? What was the density? Were there the conditions needed to make all of the heavy elements? 
So that was the reason they started doing these calculations. And they realized, wow, in the very early universe, there must have been this very, very hot plasma. And that plasma must have glowed the way plasma from the sun, for example, glows. And then the universe cooled. And at some point, that plasma becomes transparent because all of the ions in it capture electrons as they cool and they become neutral. And then it's transparent. So what they were wondering about was all that energy, all that light that was now flying around the universe, was there enough light there to like make the heavy elements? And they did a bunch of calculations and they decided, no, it wasn't possible. And now, of course, we know that those heavy elements were not made during the Big Bang. The Big Bang mostly made hydrogen and helium and very tiny amounts of heavier things. The heavier elements were made later in stars, but they didn't know that at the time until they did these calculations. Wait, how did they know that you couldn't have made the heavier elements? Because there just aren't the conditions. Like you can't make iron, for example, under the conditions just after the Big Bang. Like it needs to be hotter and denser. You need the conditions inside stars. But wasn't the Big Bang infinitely dense and super duper hot? It was, but not for very long. You know, and so it, like it took time for the basic particles to form. You needed like quarks to shake out of it. And then those quarks to get bound into protons and then those protons to find electrons. That's basically all that happened. And then things cooled down. It was very, very quick early expansion. Remember, the, the Big Bang itself is an expansion that lasts like 10 to the minus 30 seconds. I see. There wasn't enough time to make the heavier elements is what you're saying. But just enough time to only make hydrogen and helium. Just enough time to make hydrogen and helium, exactly. And little trace elements of what comes next. And so the other elements were later made in stars. And this is where cosmologists kind of lost interest. They were like, all right, so there must have been this hot plasma and it must have generated a bunch of light. But we're not interested anymore because that couldn't have made the heavy elements. That was the question they were asking. So they had the idea that there might be this light from the early universe flying around, but they didn't care because it didn't answer the question they were asking at the time. They were more interested in like how did the planets come about and how did stars and galaxies like the stuff that you can actually kind of that is interesting to them, at least at the time, in the universe. Yeah, so it's very much motivated by like what questions scientists are asking. Sometimes you stumble across an idea and you don't realize, oh, this could actually be really interesting and important for a totally different question. They were focused on, you know, how do you make these heavy elements? And on top of that, nobody imagined that you could even see this light. Even if they thought, well, that light is cool. And if you could see it, it would prove that there was this hot, dense state in the early universe. They didn't imagine it'd be possible to see it today. And so they just sort of like wrote it off and cosmologists sort of like moved on. This is calculations done in the 40s by some guys named Alpha and Herman and George Gamow. And they did it and people thought, mm, well, I guess you can't make heavy elements in the Big Bang. And then they just sort of turned to other stuff. They thought the Big Bang was too boring. <laughs> They're like, you know, like, all right, yeah, yeah, that's where the universe came from. It was a big flash, but nothing interesting happened. Nothing interesting that we could see today. These photons, they started out really hot, you know, like thousands of degrees Kelvin. But then they got cooled down as the universe expanded. They got stretched out as the universe expands down to very, very cold temperatures, which means long wavelengths, which means radio waves. And so at the time, radio astronomy was like really a brand new field that had just begun a few years earlier. So nobody imagined you could actually detect these faint signals. Nobody even like bothered to propose that somebody do that. All right, well, let's get into a little bit more detail about what they were expecting to see and then how it was accidentally discovered. But first, let's take a quick break. You know that feeling after you've done a deep spring clean of your house when you realize, wow, 
How have I been living like this? It's kind of like how you feel when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, while Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording all this? So it's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Personally, I've used Mint Mobile, and the calls are always so crisp and so clear. All of their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So it's time to ditch your overpriced wireless and go with Mint Mobile's limited time deal for three months a premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash universe. That's mintmobile.com slash universe. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash universe. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Slower speeds above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities, but it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. We're talking about the cosmic microwave background and how it was discovered. Now, Daniel, some of our listeners might not know exactly what the cosmic microwave background is or where it comes from. Do you want to give us a quick recap of what it is and what exactly it is that we're seeing when we look at it? So the cosmic microwave background are photons from about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Right. Big Bang happens. Things are really hot and dense and stuck together. And the universe expands, which means everything is getting more dilute and more cool. And by about almost 400,000 years, the universe had cooled to the point where atoms could form, like electrons were slow enough that they can now be captured by protons and turned into hydrogen, for example. And that means that the universe became transparent. So there's this moment when the universe goes from like really hot and glowy, but opaque to slightly less hot, slightly less glowy and transparent. 
right? It becomes like glass all of a sudden. So what happens to those photons that were made just before the universe became transparent? Well, they were flying around and they're still flying around. And 14 billion years later, most of them are still flying around. And so they're everywhere because the Big Bang was everywhere. And this plasma filled the entire universe and filled it with these photons. So that means that everywhere all around us are these photons, not from the Big Bang itself, but from this hot plasma that existed about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. Yeah, I'm thinking like it's like you're in the middle of a giant fire. And then suddenly the fire, every, the air all around you becomes transparent. And so you sort of get that one last, you know, flash of light from that fire right before the universe became kind of solid. And because it happened everywhere all at once, then there are always photons wherever you look. Right. We look out and we see this just in the night sky. Right. If you point your radio telescope to the night sky in any direction, you see this because there's always a place where 14 billion years ago, almost a photon was created and has been flying towards us ever since. And as time goes on, we're seeing these photons from further and further slices of that early plasma. So we're always seeing it and we always will see it. And so you were saying that in the beginning of the 1900s and through the middle of it, we sort of knew this story. We knew that's what had happened or possibly happened at the Big Bang and what happened to all those all that light, but you're saying nobody really cared about seeing this light. Nobody imagined that you could, right? Nobody thought, wow, you could actually go and detect this stuff. It seemed like it would be a really faint signal and you'd need really impressive technology. And so people just sort of like, well, I guess that existed. Just like lots of other things probably existed in early states of the universe, doesn't mean we think we can see clues of them now. It's sort of like incredible to imagine that you could see today remnants of something that happened 14 billion years ago. Right. That's sort of incredible. Most of the stuff that happened a long time ago is gone. Right. Like you can't see most of the dinosaurs that were on Earth, just a very few that happened to get fossilized. I think part of it is that, you know, we were at that time stuck on like visible light astronomy. Right. We were trying to look at the entire universe only through like the visible light spectrum. Yeah. At the same time, people were just starting to figure out that there were other ways to look at the universe. It was in the 30s that radio astronomy was accidentally invented because somebody built a big antenna to try to communicate across the Atlantic and realized, oh, my gosh, there are crazy radio signals coming from space. What? Why is space making radio signals? And that was the discovery, for example, of the big radio source at the center of our galaxy, which turns out to be from a black hole's accretion disk. And so we had just begun to understand that radio astronomy was a possible thing you could do, another way to look at the universe. Right. Everything in the universe is glowing. Everything that interacts electromagnetically gives off some kind of light. And it just depends on the temperature. So you're not very hot, so you don't glow in the visible light the way like a white hot piece of metal does or the sun does. You and the earth do, however, glow in the infrared. And so if you're cold enough, then you glow at longer and longer temperatures, which are not visible. So if you look at the night sky or any sky, really, and look at it in the frequency of radio waves, then you can see colder stuff, stuff that doesn't glow in the visible things like gas and dust and planets and other kinds of things. So it's a different way of looking at the universe. A different filter shows you different stuff. Right. And it also travels differently through space, right? Which is why it's sort of like uh, clearer to see things in the radio spectrum. Mm -hmm. Longer wavelengths are less obstructed by like small particles and stuff. So radio can travel more easily through like big clouds of gas and dust and this kind of stuff. So it lets you see through different things because every object is transparent 
or opaque at different frequencies, right? For example, your walls are transparent in x-ray, right? But opaque in visible light. You can see through them with some kinds of light, x-ray light with very high frequency, but you can't see through them in other kinds of light, like visible light. So that's kind of the picture that sets up the discovery. So we knew there was this light out there, but we didn't think we could see it. And also we were just discovering, you know, the radio spectrum of signals out there in space. So then how did they finally put the two together? So people put the two together sort of accidentally at first, and it wasn't even realized until decades and decades later, because it was World War II that really improved our radio technology. Obviously, that was important for signaling during the war. And so it gave a great boost to like a lot of our electronics and radar and radio technology. And so after World War II, people started playing around with radio a little bit more. And there were folks that were like looking at the sky and surveying it at various wavelengths. And for example, a Frenchman named Emile LaRue in 1955 made a measurement of radiation from the sky and he found this source of radiation at just the right frequency which we now understand was the CMB. He just didn't understand what it was and nobody recognized it. I see. He just hooked it up and he heard like a shh or something through his earphones or something. Yeah, and people are looking for sources, right? They're like pointing this telescope at various things, trying to find things that generated radio waves. So like the center of the galaxy generated radio waves. The sun generates radio waves. Jupiter, you're looking for like objects. You're trying to understand what's out there. But what they were seeing was in addition, this noise that you hear from every direction, right? It doesn't matter where you point it, the center of the galaxy, the center of the solar system, it doesn't matter where, it's coming from every direction. And so that's sort of weird. And people had sort of forgotten this prediction by the theorists that there would be this like radio noise from the early universe out there. And then they started to hear it and they didn't understand what it was. I see. But I guess how did they know it wasn't just noise, like just general, you know, noisy equipment, you know, thermal fluctuations, you know, noise in the air. How did they know it was something special and not just like, hey, I have bad equipment? Yeah, that's a great question. That took a more detailed comparison between what was expected and what was predicted and what was actually seen. But we'll get there in a moment. To me, it's super fun to look back into history and see evidence of future discoveries in people's data. To see people who could have claimed the discovery of something which later won the Nobel Prize, they just didn't understand what they had. And so this actually happened twice for the CMB. In 1955, it was Emil LaRue. And two years later, a Russian guy named Shimanov observed a signal at the same temperature in every direction and didn't understand it. And they just sort of like went, hmm, and then moved on and never really figured it out. Now, of course, we know that was all the data they needed to claim discovery of the CMB. They just didn't really have the context for it. Yeah, I mean, like, is it directional, this noise? Or is it only coming from space? If I point it back towards the Earth, I don't hear it. You know, I guess paint us a picture like if I'm in the 60s and I have an antenna, what would I be experiencing? Yeah, so it comes from space, right? Earth actually is a big source of radio noise. So not just electronics, but like everything around us is constantly emitting light. Just like we said earlier, it's glowing. And so you got to get rid of that by only pointing your antenna up at the sky. So you're listening to radio from the sky only. The interesting thing about this is that there doesn't seem to be any particular source of it. It doesn't seem like it's coming from the center of the galaxy. It doesn't seem like it's coming from Jupiter or from the sun or any particular source. Once you point your radio telescope up at the sky and listen, you see it equally from every direction 
which is really weird. And it's a clue that it's not coming from any particular object out there. It's just sort of like the cosmos are filled with this bath. And of course, you have to make sure it's not instrumental, that it's not just like noise in your, you know, electronics or something like that. And so you can spend a lot of time trying to like find that noise and remove it and make sure, you know, that's not from your electronics. But you can tell that it's not from any particular object because it's coming from every direction in the sky. It was definitely coming from somewhere is what you're saying. It was coming from space, right? It was definitely not coming from Earth. All right. So then what was the big breakthrough? How did they piece it all together? It was in the 60s when one group at Princeton realized, hold on a second, we might be able to see this radiation. They sort of like dug back into these old calculations from the 40s to think about this light from the early universe and realize that with the advance in radio technology, it might actually be possible. And so this is like, Go back and read old papers, people, because there are great ideas out there that people wrote down that they didn't follow up on because the technology wasn't there. And so there was a guy at Princeton named Dickey who realized, you know what, we could probably see this light. We think it's out there. It would be evidence that the universe was once hot and dense enough to generate this light. And now we think we might be able to see it. So let's go build a radio telescope so we can go and look for it. So this was Dickey at Princeton. I see it was somebody who said like, hey, radio astronomy is a thing. You could find interesting signals out there in the radio spectrum. And oh, by the way, um, you should be able to see this early light, this dim light from the universe beginning. Yeah. And it was a great idea. You know, the technology had come around. The question was interesting. I realized, wow, I have the hammer to bang in this nail. And actually, as a weird aside, Dickey didn't believe in the Big Bang as the beginning of the universe. He didn't think the universe had a beginning, but he did think that the universe had an early, really hot, dense state. He had this other idea. He thought of the universe as a sort of a cycle. He thought the universe expanded and then slowed down and crunched back together again. And he was trying to understand if that crunch was sort of like intense enough to break apart all of the matter. He wanted to find this early radiation as like evidence of how matter was destroyed rather than created. He thought this fireball destroyed the previous universe and then ours was birthed out of that. What? Like a crunch from the Big Bang? Or before the Big Bang? From before the Big Bang. He thought that our universe was just like the latest in an infinite series of universes. And that before our Big Bang, there was a big crunch. And that this sort of like cleansed the universe from all the stuff from the previous universe, you know, sort of like wiped the table and sets it for a new meal. He's thinking maybe you can hear the crunch or see like this crunching in the current universe. Yeah. And he thought that maybe this cosmic microwave background radiation, if you could spot it, would be evidence for this like cleansing radiation that basically destroyed the previous universe and helped create ours. I see. And what made them think that radio would be a better way to see it than other wavelengths. So they did this calculation. They thought, how hot was it back then? And it was about 3000 degrees Kelvin. And if that light was still around, what would be its wavelength now? So it's a little confusing. We talk about the temperature of light. What we really mean when we say the temperature of light is we mean the temperature of a thing which would generate light at a certain frequency. So for example, when we say the light was 3000 degrees Kelvin, we really mean a plasma that was 3000 degrees Kelvin would glow at a certain frequency. Something that's colder, something that's three degrees Kelvin, for example, would glow at a much longer frequency. But if you have a plasma from a long, long time ago that glowing at 3000 degrees Kelvin, it made very high frequency light. 
life that like zigs and zags really quickly. As the universe expands, remember space stretches, that light gets to longer and longer frequencies. That light gets stretched doesn't get slowed down. Light always moves at the same speed, but the wavelengths get stretched. So now that light is much longer frequency, or as we say, colder temperature. And so they did that calculation. They figured what the frequency of the light should be, and they figured it should be something corresponding to radiation from an object around three or five or 10 degrees Kelvin. So they sort of knew that if this light from the early universe glowed at a certain frequency or a frequency range, it's not like you can measure that glow in the x-rays or in the visible light like it only glows in that certain frequency yes it'd be characteristic at that temperature all right and so they were poised then to go look for it basically and then realize what a an amazing discovery it was so let's get into how they found it and when they realized what they were sitting on but first let's take another quick break The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities, but it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. All right, we're talking about the cosmic microwave background and how it was discovered. 
And it feels like people knew it was there. And this new technology, this radio astronomy was just coming into fashion. And so people were ready to see it. People were ready to see it, you know. But just like to recap the crazy history, it was like predicted in the 40s and then ignored. Accidentally discovered twice in the 50s and then ignored. And then in the early 60s, Dickie at Princeton is like, hold on a second. I bet we could see this. Let's build a telescope to look for it. So he's the first one to like really bring this idea together and decide to look for this thing on purpose. But he's not the one who actually found it. Oh, really? But did he build a telescope for it to look for it? No, he got started and they were like getting going and starting to build this thing. Meanwhile, at the same time, totally coincidentally, 60 kilometers away from Princeton at Bell Labs, there was another couple of guys working on a totally different project looking for something totally different. They built a radio telescope because they were working for Bell Labs and they were trying to communicate with balloon satellites. Bell Labs was experimenting with like building a telecommunications networks using floating balloons in the upper atmosphere. So they built this thing to talk to balloons. Oh, wow. So they had already built one, but not to do astronomy, to do like communications. Yeah, to do communications. And so they had built this thing and they were like trying to talk to balloons. And then Bell Labs decided, you know what? We're not interested in this. Let's cancel the whole project. We're not interested in like balloon satellites as a way to build a telecommunications network. But these guys, Penzias and Wilson, the ones working for Bell Labs, they had done radio astronomy for their PhDs. They knew how to do that. And they were like, all right, well, we have this awesome telescope. Why don't we point it at the sky? and see what we see. We got some questions about, you know, they wanted to follow up from basically from their theses and do some more research. So they just sort of like took advantage of this existing thing and tr started trying to do some research. I see. So they were originally scientists and they probably hoped they could use it for science, but <laughs> they had this pesky engineering problem they had to work on. But then when that got canceled, they could do science on it. Yeah. And so they had this instrument. Now, Dickie was building one for himself over at Princeton because he knew what to look for. Penzias and Wilson, they already had it, but they didn't know what to look for. They weren't looking for the cosmic microwave background. They didn't know what existed. It wasn't on their radar, so to speak, at all. They were just trying to build a sensitive instrument so they could listen to the sky. And, you know, they're great engineers and they built this really awesome telescope. If you look at pictures of it, it looks kind of funny. It doesn't look like a telescope you see often because it's only part of a parabola. It looks sort of like a big shovel, like a big scoop, because it's only a little sliver of a parabola because they wanted to be really careful and only pointed towards the sky. So it's like really well shielded from the ground and just gathers a bit of the radio waves from the sky. Now, did they set out to look for this cosmic microwave background or were they you know, hoping to look at stars and black holes and things like that. They were not looking for this at all. They had no idea this thing existed as a concept. They had no idea that it was possible to see it. One of them was interested in like finding big clouds of hydrogen that were glowing. So they wanted to look for other stuff. But they were really good engineers and builders. And so they built this thing and they cooled it really, really cold. Because what you want to do for your radio telescope is not absorb signals from like the telescope itself. Remember, everything glows, including your telescope. So they had to cool the whole telescope down to 4.2 degrees Kelvin so that it didn't like swamp itself with its own radio signals. And then finally, in July of 1965, while Dickey is over there building his own telescope, they turn it on. And what they saw was a lot more noise than they expected. Because they had done such a good job of like cooling everything that they expected to hear this clean signal. But really, they saw this like giant hiss in the radio wave. 
spectrum. Yeah, they saw this giant hiss and they pointed their telescope in different directions. It's on a big wheel so you could like turn it this way and that way and the other way. And they just couldn't get rid of this hiss. And they like took apart all their electronics and replaced them. They like put another layer of shielding on everything. They cooled everything down a little bit. All of this made like a very small amount of difference, reducing the noise a very small amount. But they couldn't get rid of this hiss. I see. They were trying to get rid of the sign signal but they because they didn't know it was a sign signal. Yeah, exactly. They thought it was just noise that was going to interfere with their science. And at one point they found a bunch of pigeons that were nesting in their telescope and they had covered part of the electronics with pigeon poop or as they called it in their paper, white poultry dialectic material. <laughs> and they cleaned all that off, but it didn't help anything. And so they were very disappointed. You know, at the time, Wilson says, this was a huge disappointment for us scientifically. And they spent like a year plunking away at this thing, trying to get rid of this noise. They had no idea what they were looking at. Well, in a way, they were right. You know, like if they were trying to get, you know, radio wave signals from a cloud of hydrogen somewhere, this is sort of noise that gets in the way, right? Like the universe just has this noise. They just didn't know it was a feature of the universe. Absolutely. You know, one man's noise is another woman's signal, is another woman's Nobel Prize. And we have that in particle physics all the time. We were looking for the top quark, and now the top quark is an obstacle in finding other particles. We wish we could, like, turn it off and get it out of the way so we could see other stuff. And so, yeah, it's very subjective. All right. So then they thought they had some sort of error or some sort of equipment failure for over a year. And then how did they realize that this was something of interest? So Penzias, one of the guys who built this telescope, happened to run into one of his friends, Bernard Berkey, on an airplane, who told him that Dickey over Princeton was looking for this exact thing. So Penzias is like complaining about how we have this hiss in our telescope. Oh my gosh, we don't understand it. And he says, you should talk to these guys at Princeton because I think they know what you found. Oh, wow. No kidding. On an airplane. On an airplane, just like by chance. And I'm guessing this is, you know, the 60s. So they were, you know, wearing ties, drinking cocktails. Smoking. Yeah, smoking in the plane, right? <laughs> Over the loud propeller noises. Yeah, so Penzias calls up Dickey at Princeton and says, I heard about this thing you're predicting. Dickey sends him a paper written by his student, John Peebles, predicting this noise and explaining exactly what it should look like. And Penzias is like, wow, uh, this is exactly what we are seeing in our telescope right now. They had no idea. You know, what does it mean what it looks like? Should, like, it, should it have a specific like signature in, when you look at the signal in the frequency spectrum or should it have this particular shape to it? Or what is that like? How would you recognize? It. Yeah, it looks like what we call black body radiation. So as we said earlier, everything in the universe that has a temperature glows and it glows at a specific frequency, but not at only one frequency. It tends to peak at a frequency and then have a particular shape. So at one frequency, you'll have the highest intensity of radiation. And then at the nearby frequencies, it'll sort of fall off in a very characteristic pattern that we call black body spectrum. And so what they saw was the frequency of something at 2.7 degrees Kelvin glowing with black body radiation. And so it wasn't just like, oh, we saw a bunch of photons of this one number, like they saw the whole shape. You know, it's like if you saw a mountain of a very specific shape and somebody predicted seeing a mountain of exactly that shape, you'd be like, OK, you've understood how that mountain came to be. Because black body radiation, I think it doesn't just look like a bell curve, like a random noise curve. It, it actually has kind of a shape to it, right? Yeah, it has a shape. It's asymmetric around the peak. So it's very characteristic. All right. So then Dickie's like, uh oh, 
Like I'm building this telescope, but these guys uh, already have it and we've been scooped. Yeah, exactly. There's a famous story where Dickie gets off the phone from talking with Penzias and says, boys, we've been scooped. And that's really kind of a bummer for Dickie because he's the one who had this idea to look for it and started building his telescope. Like that was really the ingenuity. And Penzias and Wilson just sort of like stumbled across it, had no idea what they had found until Dickie told them. That's what you get for answering the phone, Daniel. That's why I never answer my phone. It could be somebody trying to scoop. (laughs) (laughs) So then they worked together. Everyone was a very good science citizen at that point. And Dickie like explained to them what they were looking for. And they all agreed to publish together. So Dickie and his crew published a paper saying, we predict that if you looked in the sky at this frequency, you could see the afterglow of remnants from the Big Bang. And it would look just like this. And you can do it and it'll be very interesting. And then in the same journal, the next paper is Penzias and Wilson saying, by the way, we've looked in the sky and we see this weird glow. We think it might be explained by the previous paper you just read by Dickey and his group. Interesting. It was a two-part series. It was a two-part series. And this is nice, you know, when scientists who are working on something and realize they're sort of in competition or in working in parallel, they decide to publish together rather than like have some crazy race to who gets their paper in one minute before. Mm, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So then, because I guess Dickey didn't have his telescope ready. It's not like he could have just like jumped in and and found the signal, he was just still a ways away from having a functioning telescope. Yeah, he had been scooped, right? And just by chance, if Penzias and Wilson had waited another year or something, then Dickey could have had the idea and the data, but he didn't. And Penzias and Wilson went on to win the Nobel Prize in 1978 for this observation. Wow. And also Peebles got it too, right? Peebles, who originally had this idea and wrote the paper, he won the Nobel Prize in 2019 for like other contributions to cosmic microwave background theory. But Dickey, in the end, never won a Nobel Prize. I see. So back then, it went to the people who discovered it, not the people who predicted that it would be there. Yeah, because if you look back in history, it turns out that other people had already predicted it, right? People in the 40s had the idea that this would be there. And there was this other Russian group, which in the early 60s had also published a paper saying, by the way, we might be able to see this. People should go look for it. So that was an idea which was sort of old and bubbling up around the world at the same time. And maybe by 1978, a lot of those people had died or something, (laughs) right? You couldn't give them the Nobel Prize for it. That's true. You can't give the Nobel Prize to somebody if they've already died. Yeah. All right. Well, and so that's how we humans discovered the cosmic microwave background. And it's something that's pretty significant, right? It tells us a lot about the conditions for the early universe, about the composition of the universe. It confirms things like dark matter, dark energy. I mean, there's a lot in that signal. Yeah. Hawking says it's the greatest discovery of the century, if not of all time. And the reason is that it is really very, very rich, like how the cosmic microwave background looks and specifically how it's not exactly smooth, but has these little ripples in it tells us a lot about how that early universe plasma was operating, what it was doing. And like ripples in that plasma are sensitive to things like is the dark matter fraction of the universe 20 percent or 5 percent because it changes how that matter sort of sloshes back and forth if the dark matter is interacting or not. So as you say, we can fit a lot of the parameters of the universe, a lot of the questions about what the universe is made out of and how it came to be come from understanding that in great detail. And, you know, years later, people launched a satellite to measure the cosmic microwave background radiation very precisely. That was called the COBE satellite. And then that won a Nobel Prize. So it's like a very rich area of research. Right. There's not just a lot of information in it, but it also kind of 
basically confirms our theories about the early universe, right? Like it, it's like perfect evidence for all these theories about the Big Bang and inflation and, uh, you know, what was happening in those early few seconds. Yeah, it definitely confirms the Big Bang, right? It tells us that the steady state theory just doesn't work because the universe was once much more dense and hot and crazy. So it rules out the steady state theory and confirms the Big Bang. It doesn't exactly confirm inflation precisely. There are some predictions for like weird little wiggles in the CMB we might be able to see that would confirm inflation. And several years ago, there was an experiment called BICEP2 that thought they had seen that, but it turns out they were wrong. But in the future, there's a lot more we can learn about the universe, whether inflation was right. Is it the right theory of what caused the Big Bang in the very, very early universe? We still don't know, but we hope that there's more layers of information in the CMB that will one day reveal even more about the early universe and how it all came to be. Yeah, there might still be more noble prices in there. Yeah, there might be information in that data right now, which you could download onto your laptop. And if you knew how to interpret, could win you a Nobel Prize. Sometimes everything you need is right in front of you. Or I guess the danger is you could download it, have it on your computer and then not discover something. And then <laughs> in the future, some physicists in a podcast saying, see, that person had that data in his or her laptop and didn't see. It. So better to just not download it. Better to just ignore it and go about your day. Or just don't answer the phone <laughs> yeah, and you'll you never go, hear yeah. about how you were scooped. You'll have an easier life. All right. Well, that is how we discover one of the greatest discoveries of human history, apparently. Although I would argue that, you know, that bowl of oatmeal I had this morning was a pretty good discovery <laughs> as well. I think brown sugar on oatmeal, that was a pretty big discovery. <laughs> oh, no thanks. Who came up with that? No thanks. No thanks. <laughs> oh, you're a purist, huh? That's a level too far. Oh, all right. That's for the future. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed that story. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 